and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today on our show, we're going to talk about Trump's Erdogan letter. The Red Green Access author Jim Simpson joins me in studio. Representative Elijah Cummings' legacy and Biden's baffling mendacity. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. Hello and welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. President Trump is getting all kinds of criticism over a letter that he sent to President Erdogan of Turkey. And I wanna just read the letter to you. It's very short. It, it was dated October 9th. And we'll just talk about what exactly this letter did and what its purpose was. So from October, on October 9th, addressed to His Excellency, President um, Erdogan, the Republic of Turkey. Here's the exact language President Trump set in a, sent in a formal communication. Dear Mr. President, Let's work out a good deal, exclamation point. You don't want to be responsible for slaughtering thousands of people, and I don't want to be responsible for destroying the Turkish economy, dash, and I will. I've already given you a little sample with respect to Pastor Brunson. New paragraph, I have worked hard to solve some of your problems. Don't let the world down. You can make a great deal. General Maslum, who is the head of the Kurds, General Maslum is willing to negotiate with you, and he's willing to make concessions that they never would have made in the past. I am confidentially enclosing a copy of his letter to me just received. History will look upon you favorably if you get this if you get this done the right and humane way. It will look upon you forever as the devil if good things don't happen. Don't be a tough guy. Don't be a fool. I will call you later. Sincerely, Donald Trump. Okay, the left is having a meltdown about the content of that letter. In fact, someone from CNN actually said on air, I had to verify with the White House that this possibly actually gets sent by the President of the United States. And the answer is yes. And I want to tell you why I think it's a great thing. First of all, let's talk briefly about President Erdogan. You know, when people use the word jihadist, you picture some nutcase in a cave someplace, strapping bombs to himself, ready to launch into some public square and kill a bunch of innocent people. That's a jihadist. It's an Islamic jihadist. The idea of that is they want to kill innocent people with them as part of the mission, not just to kill innocent people for no reason, as part of their mission, mission to spread Islam. The mission of Islam is to spread Islam throughout the world so the entire world is, lives under Islam, under the law called Sharia, in a caliphate. That is the stated mission of Islam. So you don't think of someone who runs a country like Turkey as being a jihadist, but actually that's exactly what Erdogan is. He is the president of Turkey. He's also a jihadist. I read the other day on our show several statements he'd made recently. I'm gonna read just a couple quick ones. You understand the nature of this guy's thinking. He has expressed his claimed intention to establish the, a jihad. Uh, in fact, this is early January 2018. Ismail Karaman, the Speaker of Turkey's National Assembly, said, without jihad, there can be no progress. And then he also, in February 2018, February 2018, Erdogan spoke openly about his jihadist intent to reclaim the lands Turkey once dominated in the days of the Ottoman Empire. 
I could read you quote after quote after quote. Erdogan is a jihadist. He's not a, you know, prissy intellectual leader like of Canada, like Trudeau. The guy is a jihadist. How Trump wrote to him is how you write to people like that. You tell them, honestly, I will destroy you. Jihadists will not stop unless you make them afraid. And this is what President Trump done. Here's it did. Here's the sequence, the dates of things. Sorry, I got to read from this text I had someone send me. October 7th, Trump announced his decision to pull 28 members of the U.S. military out of harm's way. That was a very controversial decision we talked about with Frank Gaffney yesterday, a couple days ago. October 9th, Trump letter to Erdogan that I just read, ending with, don't be a fool. October 11th, Trump outlines sanctions authority against Turkey. October 14th, Trump initiates sanctions against, uh, via Turkey, uh, against Turkey via Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. October 17th, today, Trump, Pence secures ceasefire from Turkey. You remember we played a little clip, Vice President Pence was headed over there to meet with the, the uh, Turkish officials. They've gotten a ceasefire. I am not saying that every communication from the president should be written in the tone that President Trump used writing to President Erdogan of Turkey. I am saying the American people who understand what jihadists are all about are jumping up and down and, cl and clapping. People in Washington are clutching their pearls and wringing their hands and expressing just, they're just so embarrassed our country would have a leader like that. They don't understand what's happening. Let me remind you the leader they like so well, President Obama. Under President Obama, who had Secretary Kerry speaking for him, Secretary of State Kerry, the two of them involved, negotiating with Iran, essentially giving Iran a path to nuclear weapons. That's what the Iranian deal did. But they did that negotiation all using the kind of language and tone and nose in the air, effete statesman elitism that the two of them exuded, at the same time selling out America's interest to Iran, emboldening and enabling Iran to move forward with their also jihadist conquests to take over a larger and larger portion of the Middle East. I'll take Trump any day of the week. And that, my friends, is today's first five. Well, turn I mentioned at the start, we have a guest in studio, uh, and he is sitting right here. It's always fun to have a guest in studio. Um, he is uh, the author of this book, which we're going to talk about. I'm going to hold it up first. You can see it. Yeah, okay, you can see it. It is called The Red-Green Axis 2.0, An Existential Threat to America and the World by author James Simpson. So, hello, sir. Good afternoon, Debbie. Great to be with you. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming in the studio. And I just want to jump right into your book. I want to say, folks, first of all, this book, you can order it. Um, actually, you can order it on Amazon. On Amazon. You can order from the Center for Security Policy. But even the title, I wanted to take two seconds and talk about the title, The Red-Green Axis. And I underlined the language I want to read to you because I think some people are not familiar with this with this wording, and that was what we're going to talk about the rest of the time, talking with author Jim Simpson, but from his introduction, the red-green axis is a collusion between the Democrat Party, American communists, socialists, and other brands of progressives, i.e. the red, and the forces of the Islamic Jihad, the green, so named because the color green carries much symbolism in Islam, and most Muslim nations feature green in their flags, emblems, and other identifiers. Its collective goal is to alter and undermine our national character, traditions, and laws so much that it can overthrow our constitutional republic form of government without firing a shot. Exactly right. 
Okay. Exactly right. I couldn't have said it better myself. Oh, uh, you did. did say that. This is you. Yeah. But I got to tell you that I have people who tune into this issue. Yeah. I, I heard the title of this and I knew what you were talking about mm. before I even saw what the book was. Sure. But here's the th- problem, Pat, and I don't even know if you have a thought about this concept, but people watch things happening in our society, like the border is insecure, and we have people name-calling if you want a secure border that you're a hater and you're a xenophobe or right. something like that. Right. We have threats of Islamic terrorism, and the president tries to have an executive order, which he finally got, vetting Islamic uh, people want to come to America from Islamic countries where they have a problem with jihad, and he's called an Islamophobe and a hater. So everybody involved on the Marxist left in this country trying to rid us of the Constitution, grow power in Washington, and all those people who are Islamists Mm -hmm. and they want to push jihad, they didn't have some big meeting in some secret location and every one of them sat down at a big table. You're more talking about their ideologies merging. Is that right? No, actually. Yes and no. I mean, their ideologies definitely have merged. I mean, there is no sunlight between the radical left and the Islamists. And I distinguish between the Islamists uh, as represented by groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which is a Muslim Brotherhood front group. It's actually a front group for the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas, um, and the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, which is the second largest uh, intergovernmental organization in the world, 56 countries, yep. and the Palestinian territories. All of them have joined forces uh, formally with the radical left. And you see this all the time at the Southern Poverty Law Center, the American Civil Liberties Union, and now even the Anti-Defamation League have jumped on board to uh, promote this idea that anybody that opposes this Islamic agenda is by definition a hater and an Islamophobe. But really, that is just an extension of a long-standing leftist strategy which is to defame, marginalize, and even financially and sometimes physically destroy anyone who stands in the way of their agenda, and especially people who speak articulately about that agenda. And you know many of those people yourself. Frank Gaffney and the Center for Security Policy, they're roundly Uh, criticized by the SPLC, the ACLU, the Council on American-Islamic Relations Care uh, as Islamophobes because they articulate exactly what and who these people are. And so they've joined forces and and it is not, uh, well, it is informal in the sense that they may not always call each other and sit down and collaborate over how they're going to approach uh, an issue. But when something comes up that raises a red flag to SPLC or CARE or anybody else, CARE also now works with the Black Lives Matter movement, which is communist organization, yes. which is another communist organization that I've written extensively about. Um, they don't have to. They're all on the same page. They know exactly what to do. That's what I'm getting. I mean, that was a much more articulate explanation than what I said, but I was trying to get this idea. You know, people who, for example, 
American citizens mm -hmm. who feel sympathetic about the border, right. who feel sympathetic about, my gosh, these people right, are just right. starving and they're right. coming up here. We just have, we're so wealthy, can't we just right. let them all in? Right. <laughs> they don't That's think crazy. that they're allying with Islamic terrorists. I mean, there, there's just, at the ideological level, mm -hmm. these entities you mentioned, Southern mm -hmm. Poverty Law Center, CARE, ADL now, which is amazing yeah. that they're in the middle of that, but uh, on other groups, they all have the same agenda and they all defend each other, but I just feel like there are many Americans who get led along that path, they're sympathetic on one issue, mm -hmm. and they think, gee, I just feel really, really bad yeah. about yep. the, yeah, but they are just, they're not recognizing, they're joining in this really, um, very malevolent, malevolent, dangerous uh, mm. mission toward yep. America, uh, yes. aimed at America. Exactly right. And the people need to understand, you know, the technique that they use, and it doesn't matter, you see it with every single issue that the left promotes, whether it's transgenderism, uh, illegal immigration, uh, environment, uh, global warming, it's all about if you don't agree with them 100%, you're not compassionate. And of course, you can always find examples of situations that you should be compassionate about. I mean, there are terrible stories from some of the people that come across the border. Of course, that's true. But the overall agenda, the, the agenda will not serve those people any more than it will serve us. And that's what people need to understand. They use the language of compassion because it puts them strategically on higher ground. Moral high ground. Moral there. higher yeah. ground. They wrap themselves in the mantle of compassion and anybody that opposes can automatically, therefore, be defamed as insensitive, a hater, or, or racist, or bigoted, or xenophobic, or now the latest uh, turn of phrase is Islamophobe. But all these are just created terms that emotionally capture and either uh, uh, inspire us or intimidate us. Those are the goals, and it has nothing to do with the reality. In, the rea in reality, they're taking over in the background, and what the ideas that they have for us are, they're so beyond description bad mm -hmm. that it would be, you, you might have a hard time believing it if I articulated it fully for you. You know, I'm going to divide up, uh, leave Islam off to the side for a moment and just talk mm -hmm. about the leftist movement in this country. Mm -hmm. I used to say in the show all the time, the leftist agenda, not the average, you know, Joe in Indiana who votes Democrat because his grandmother did or something, but the leaders of the American left, they do actually intend to ultimately dissolve the, the concept they of the it. constitutional government. They right. Say so it. they have, for example, the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. When you, you think, oh, well, sure, I'm an environmentalist. Who doesn't love clean air and clean water? Yeah. When you dig into it, you realize it is a complete, and I will use the word communist, takeover of this country. Yeah. If the Green New Deal, as articulated, by the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of the world and every single Democrat presidential candidate has mm -hmm. signed on. Mm -hmm. If you articulate that and, and read, understand what it is, it is a complete destruction of the free market system, mm -hmm. complete destruction of our, our comfort, our way of life. You're gonna go to allegedly, now they won't live on drip, but everybody else will. Yeah. The, the you know discomfort of not having reliable energy, not having your right. home warm in the winter and cold and cool in the summer. 
it is, and I think the Green New Deal, and I think the southern border being so uh, just barraged and overwhelmed, I think those two things helped Americans wake up to say, wow, the left really is no longer on the American playing field. They're no longer part of America. Do you, th- do you agree those two are particularly strong? Yes, and I don't believe they've ever been on the side of America. I don't believe they ever have. But it, what has happened is that with the pre- election of President Trump and America speaking out with that election, just as in 2010, they're thrown into panic because in 2010, you know, the Tea Parties uh, restored more Republicans to state houses and state legislatures that had been in office since 1928. And that terrified them. So immediately what happened to the Tea Party? It became this party of racist, bigots, right, right. throwbacks who, who, you know, uh, missed white America. And, and, and so this is just a replay of 2010 because President Trump struck a chord with us and Americans spoke and they're terrified that that America is is in uh, on the rebound and may destroy their entire agenda that they have spent decades, decades <laughs> slowly slowly building and the thing about uh, illegal immigration well actually the overall immigration agenda uh, it is that it's targeted to facilitate their agenda period uh, firstly and you and I know this, and a lot of people are coming to realize it, but it has to be said repeatedly that their first goal is to get as many non-Americans into this country that don't believe in, understand, or have any attachment to, or want to assimilate with our society, understand our constitutional Republican form of government, who will vote reliably Democrat and deliver to them the permanent, they call it permanent progressive majority they have been seeking for decades. And if they're successful, and they talk about demographics being destiny, this is something they've discussed among themselves, and for them, it's basically a waiting game. If we don't do anything about immigration, they will win by default, simply because of the way those demographics vote and how those demographics are trending, both in terms of legal, illegal immigration, and birth rates. And so, um, so that's number one. Number two, by bringing in people from hundreds of different countries that don't share our culture or history, uh, it's basically diluting right. American culture to the point where it becomes unrecognizable and then it essentially disappears. And at the same time, they're indoctrinating our children against that American culture, calling it racist, white supremacy, you know, white privilege. All these things are communist terms. These are all invented by the Communist Party and I can go through the people who invented them. Um, And so it's all part and parcel of the same thing. It's a very widespread, sophisticated, divide and conquer strategy, which also is targeting the Muslim population in the United States. Because I believe firmly that most Muslims in the United States would rather just live here and enjoy the the prosperity, the freedom, and everything else that we have. But the radical groups, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood groups, especially CARE, um, want to provoke hatred 
and they always talk about anti-Muslim. It's right. not about anti-Muslim, it's about them. And I can even quote Muslims who have talked about care because you know, when the uh, Al-Shabaab Somali terrorist group mm -hmm. and ISIS were recruiting uh, in people Minnesota. in the United States, they focused a lot on Minneapolis, Minnesota, mm -hmm. parents of Somali children who were recruited by Al-Shabaab said that CARE was facilitating that right. recruitment and CARE told them to shut up. CARE told them do not talk to the FBI and anybody that did was labeled, guess what? An Islamophobe. They were they were Muslim, but they're Islamophobes. <laughs> but they were Islamophobes. Well, you know, I love I love what you just broke down. And you know, one reason I do this show, I, I do a lot of public speaking, and I'm often talking to people that already agree with us. And so I'm always thinking about, you know, what is it that will be? What little seeds of thought can you plant to help people see? Wow, I didn't recognize what was happening. I think the border insecurity, as I said a moment ago, it helped people realize what you just said. The <clears throat> left doesn't want a secure border. They want to flood America with illegal aliens who will then disappear into the heartland. And someday when the Democrats have the House and the Senate and the White House, they will magically all get amnesty and they think they'll have a permanent Democrat voting base. Years ago when I said that, people thought, man, you know, you're so cynical, that is so, that's so extreme. Yeah. I think most Americans see that now because yeah. the border problem right now, the pure numbers, the Democrats' opposition to border security of any kind is helping them see that. Now moving over to Islam, I think many people in America wanted to believe, after 9-11, wanted to believe what President Bush was telling them, Islam is a religion of peace, they don't mean any harm, the jihadists are not really following what Islam teaches. The jihadists are doing exactly what Islam teaches. Yeah. You can say that and know that truth mm -hmm. and at the same time understand what our guest Jim Simpson said, that there are Muslims in America and around the world who do not actually want to be involved in jihad. Yeah. They came here to get the heck away from yeah. some of it. <laughs> but we have in our country a mix of people who came here to escape jihad and violence and people who came here to spread the jihadist mission mm -hmm. to America. This is why it's so complex here, mm -hmm. getting ourselves straight what our policy mm -hmm. is, and then moving on to what your book is talking about, the number of refugees, this kind of a mixture of the two issues, the number of refugees and the number of immigrants coming into America when we were not actually sure of their jihadist intentions mm -hmm. created a danger and it's a great example of your red green axis right. you're mixing the two things so Absolutely. this is a very broad question but you talk a lot in your book you have data first of all the book we're talking about is this filled with data you must simply have it but you talk about the number of people coming to America, and there was a decision by President Trump in 2019, I think, we're reducing refugees to 20,000. Many people said that sounded unkind. What's your thought about that and the way, backing up from that, how the refugee policy has been used against America? Certainly. Well, first of all, um, he, he began reducing, the one, one authority he has over the refugee resettlement program is he, uh, decides the refugee caps. That is how yeah. many people you can bring in every year. So in 2017, his first year in office, he reduced it to 50,000, whereas in that year before he left, Obama had put it at 110,000. So he reduced it to 50,000 in 2017. Can I just jump in one second? Yep. Yeah. The quickest thing. 
We're not talking about immigration. Immigration is a million a year or so legally coming here. Right. We're talking like about refugees. Say, but I'd like to say something about that too. Oh, go ahead. But anyway, so well, let me finish this. So, so, and then in 2018, uh, he reduced it to 45,000. In 2019, he reduced it to 30,000. This is the refugee caps. And for 2020, he's reduced it to 18,000. Okay. Now, there are private tax-exempt contractors who are all run by leftists, even though six of the nine are nominally religious. They are all run by radical leftists, and they all make money by the head to resettle refugees. So the, the refugee program actually encourages uh, these government contractors to jump on board with the agenda of getting as many refugees. So they're out there protesting and talking about inhumane, how inhumane it is that we're reducing the refugee cap. So he's reduced it to 18,000, which is the lowest in its history. And the last three years have seen fewer refugees than at any time in the program's history. As far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. But there are many groups that are come under the uh, under the authority of the refugee program that are not actually refugees. They have something called special immigrant visas. They have the Cuban Haitian Entrant Program. They have asylum seekers. Uh, they have uh, victims of trafficking. And they also have the Unaccompanied Alien Children Program, which is what we're having on the border now. Yeah. And, so, and, and so when you add them all up, it's still over 100,000 people coming in here a year. But that's not it. Uh, and, and those people, all of those people, take welfare at astronomical rates, astronomical rates. Um, and I talk about that extensively in the book. Um, but the a million legal permanent residents we allow in every year, the business community wants all that because they say, oh, we need those people to fill jobs Americans won't take. In 2018, or maybe it was 2017, I forget which is the last data year they had available, 12% of that million legal permanent residents came here on employment visas. The rest are family reunification and other similar programs, which is a polite way of saying chain migration. Yep. And these are all just low-income families of low-income people that have come here before, so they are not adding anything. In fact, they are hugely adding to the burden. They are adding to the bottom line for Democratic voters. And I would also say on the illegal alien front, it doesn't matter whether they're legal or illegal because as we've seen, the corrupt courts have prevented the Trump administration from limiting census to citizens. Yep. So non-citizens are being counted, and that's going to add Democrat districts to the Congress for this upcoming election. Furthermore, those people, because they, most of them speak Spanish, go into Hispanic areas and register, help register Hispanic voters who are legal to vote, but generally vote at very low rates, which once again facilitates the Democratic left's efforts to essentially steal this country. And that's what they're doing with their immigration agenda. Very well said, it's exactly what they're doing. I appreciate that so much. Your book is full of data. Um, I do wanna mention one other thing. We, I saw you at an event where you spoke last night and my question I was getting at was, I mean, th this information, you gotta have it and so you can respond to your friends who doubt that we have a problem. But 
the kind of things people can do. And mm. we talked last night, for example, about the 1980 Refugee Resettlement yep. Act. Mm. There is no <clears throat> law that requires us, there's no unchangeable law that requires us to continue to even participate in the refugee program. Much of our, the refugee decisions facing America are brought to us by the United Nations. They have a role in designating who comes here. So I'm getting at, we could as Americans say, we're going to remove ourselves from this refugee resettlement process, the UN does, still open our borders to those we choose to accept, have a direct process, get out of it, the, and then also to get out of the business of assuming that every year we must take a certain number of refugees in. And I think the I think the willingness of Congress to say that, to say we have a problem of bringing people in who don't assimilate, we're, we're losing our culture, the fabric of our country, I actually think that could fly, given where we are right now. But what, what do you tell people who say, what can I do? Well, uh, that is definitely one thing. I mean, president has done, the president has done everything he can within his limited authority to reduce refugee resettlement. A big part of that was his extreme vetting idea, which has substantially reduced uh, uh, helped to substantially reduce and keep below the caps the number of refugees coming in, which was a sound idea because prior to that, there was no vetting. Practically every Muslim Somali living in the United States today, uh, we don't have no idea if they uh, came here legally or not because many of them committed fraud on their applications, yep. and especially the family reunification program had to be shut down under President Obama because they found by doing DNA testing that 80% were not actually family members who said yes. they were family members. And none of them have been sent back, by the way. This, they've all committed a crime, but they're all still sitting there in, in uh, Minneapolis or wherever, and nobody has said, you gotta go home. And the crazy thing is, a lot of these Somalis now go back to Mogadishu, now go back to Somalia, where supposedly the Refugee Act requires that they be unwilling or afraid to go back to their country of right. origin due to fear of oppression. But now they're going back there for, for vacation to visit their relatives. What's more, the Minneapolis Minneapolis City Council had decided that those who live in public housing will only have to pay a very minimal rent in the months that they go back there because they came back to the United States and complained that their uh, rent was months in arrears and they couldn't afford it. Yeah, they, they are it's enablers. Insane. Actually, that's red-green access right there, these left-wing Minneapolis uh, City Council members. Well, but, but, but I didn't really answer your question. Okay. What, what can people do? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, need to elect more people who are willing to wrestle with this subject because frankly a lot of people in Congress from both sides of the aisle are not. That's one thing. Uh, another thing is of course spreading the information. Um, but you know when you talk to people, the, 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 we have people that listen to us say yeah we get it, we get it, we understand, we need to do things. There's no magic bullet. You get involved in all kinds of different ways. You get involved in, in, in groups here. There's so many different things we can do. Uh, you can run for office yourself. Hey, big idea. Finally, you wanna to talk to people who are on the fence or who don't agree. Don't preach to them. Don't try to tell them, you need to understand this. You need to get this. Most people look at it and say, oh, that's just conspiracy theory, something like that. Don't tell them anything. Ask them. Ask them. 
sounds to me, Debbie, like you just you just are a compassionate person, and you'd like to see all these people come in because you're compassionate. Is that true? Yeah, sure. That's that's true. But what would you say if you understood that half of these children are being trafficked? Is do you still feel the same way? You know, once you once you establish a rapport with somebody by asking them to express their feelings about it, you can talk. You it sometimes you're able to open the door to talk further about it. It's a good thing way to handle people who are on the fence or who disagree with you. Don't get angry or or argue with them. Just ask them to to explain themselves and ask yep. them in a way that you're you're sympathetic and willing to listen to, and the. The, the falsehoods, the, the, uh, the, the intellectual uh, non sequiturs <laughs> that come out, they become obvious to them if you ask yeah. enough questions. Yeah. Jim Simpson, what you could do, in addition to what you just said, is share facts from this book. I'm telling you that I think most people think they are informed and they are compassionate and so they don't want to really stand up or they don't want to face the challenges America has. But as I say, I encourage people all the time in Speaking Up for America, you have to have some facts ready. Just kind of plant the seed. Did you know this? Does this concern you? Are you aware of this? And if you want to have about a million facts, you can plant uh, right here in this book. Yeah, so, absolutely. Jim Simpson, thank you so very much. Thank Appreciate you, your Debbie. coming in. Thanks thank so you much for being for here. Me. And I'm telling you folks, this is a great, it's, like, it's a mini encyclopedia about the issue we face. So uh, one or two of the stories I want to hit today in our uh, time we have remaining. One is, of course, everyone's now aware that Representative Elijah Cummings passed on this morning. And I want to do just the briefest reference to him and his life. He is the current chair, uh, well, he's now deceased, but he was at the time of his passing, the chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee. And so he's been a very powerful player in Washington a long time. He's been in Congress 30, uh, 23 years before that. He served in the Maryland State House. I'll say this about that. I love America. I love that we have representative government. I love that the people of Baltimore, his district was majority black. I love that they have representation in Congress. It's the most beautiful structure for human government ever created is our constitution. It gives a voice to everyone in the country. You can choose your representative who goes up to Washington and argues that point of view. It's a beautiful thing and that's what this man did. He was known for driving back and forth regularly to his district down to Washington. To, to, to Congress, you know, he wasn't living in fancy spots. He was driving back and forth. He was a, uh, he fought hard for how he saw things. I, I will give him that credit. He saw and was concerned about race relations in America and discrimination and racism in this country. Spoke up about it quite a bit. Um, he was very active in the Congressional Black Caucus and, and spoke out on, on behalf of issues he saw. And this is what is the beautiful part of America, that that guy, a guy had a voice like that. And he was uh, among, and today he's being remembered by people on both sides of the aisle, just as having appreciated him. Another great thing about America is you can be in Congress and you can be a staunch Democrat and a staunch Republican and battle it out on the issues and get to legislation you want to get to, but those people actually have friendships. I think there were, there were friendships expressed and talked about in the remembrances of him both uh, on both sides of the aisle. I will also say, in being an honest remembering of Elijah Cummings, he was the guy who, as an example, when, in fact, related to issues we're talking about today, True the Vote came along. True the Vote was one of the groups that grew out of concerns about the radical left turning of our country about whether elections were fair, 
True the Vote grew up kind of around the same time as a Tea Party. And True the Vote was the organization where Catherine Engelbrecht founded it, still leads it. She's been on the show many times. She went to Congress to tell them what happened to her, how when she tried to get her 501c3 status for her group called True the Vote, she testified about the harassment by the federal government. The IRS is a laundry list of alphabet soup agencies that harassed her and her husband and their business and their family. They put her family through hell for years. In her congressional testimony, Elijah Cummings said he had nothing to do with that. He said he had nothing, had no idea, didn't nothing to do with it at all. Fortunately for uh, the availability and in uh, our world of looking everything up, it turns out he did. This back in 2014, Elijah Cummings had actually had his staff send numerous complaints to the IRS demanding they investigate True the Vote, demanding they figure out a way to shut her down, making all sorts of unjustified accusations. To be really clear, all of the investigation, the IRS, even the, and it wasn't the Bureau of Land Management, it was the um, alcohol, fire, and tobacco people looking into them. Agency after agency never found any wrongdoing, but they managed to take her off her game, running True the Vote, and spending her time and draining her family fortune defending herself. Elijah Cummings was in the middle of that. He lied in Congress saying he had nothing to do with it. In fact, he was a left-winger stirring up the abuse of the American citizen by the government. That was one little piece about him. And I know that sounds harsh in the day we're all honoring his life, but to say you can honor his fighting and honor his courage and, and honor his speaking up and this beautiful system we have in this country, you can't, you can't say he is without fault. You can't say, you can't just let those kinds of things pass. They were serious wrongdoing. His presently up until the day before he passed on, very much part of the effort, to get President Trump kicked out of office for any reason, a huge leader in the ring leader in the mission to impeach the president based on nothing. As I said in the show, nothing President Trump has ever done or said has anything to do with why the left is moving to impeach him. They want to impeach him because he is daring to push forward his agenda that they don't like and impeachment is a vehicle they have to fight against him. And so this impeachment thing has nothing to do with this conversation with Zelensky of Ukraine, nothing to do with Ukraine at all, everything to do with the radical left not, willing, not wanting to be willing to let President Trump be President Trump. One last story for today I want to hit, and again, on the need to be tender and yet uh, honest and factual. Vice President Biden, presidential candidate Biden, is apparently really on the ropes. I mean, he's had, we've discussed various things that happened during his campaign. He gave a long speech talking about how he interacted with the students from the high school in Florida at the school shooting, as it turns out. And he claimed they came to the White House, talked to him. He took him to Congress. Republicans wouldn't talk to them. You know, Mr. Second Amendment limitation guy. And, and as you likely know, that incident did not occur while he was in the White House. It actually occurred under President Trump. So this was a, all existing a fantasy in his mind didn't really happen. A little bit dangerous. Many other missteps. But something came to light recently that I think is even more character revealing, and I want to be tender in the way I share it, but, but it matters to understand the level, the determination, the depth of determination this guy has to engender sympathy, to tell a lie, and keep on telling a lie. And this is not about the Ukraine. We've talked about that to death. But you likely remember, and I remember hearing it back in 1972, in December of 1972, 
then barely newly elected senator, Joe Biden, got a phone call letting him know that his then wife and their uh, daughter had been killed in a car accident. It was December of 1972. His wife at the time was named Nelia. They had a baby daughter, Naomi. The two boys were in the back seat who were also severely injured but did survive. No one on the planet Earth wants to get that phone call. Horrific, no end of sympathy for someone to have to go through that. Having said that, it has become part of his campaign stump speech, his bio, that he, Biden, suffered this loss of his wife and his daughter at the hands of a drunk driver. He said it over and over. He said things like, you know, guess that guy drank his lunch that day. And he made other, not just once or twice, many times, over and over and over. Well, now the daughter, the adult daughter of that truck driver who whose truck collided with Mrs. Biden's car, the, and that truck driver passed on, but his daughter, who's and not at the time, the truck driver passed on years later, but the adult daughter's coming forward to saying, we're really tired of this. We want this man, Biden, to start telling the truth. The truth is, as investigated by the police, as investigated by the district attorney, as reported by the family, there was no alcohol involved. The accident occurred because the first Mrs. Biden, and I'm sorry because people make mistakes all the time driving and it doesn't have this horrific consequence, she had a stop sign. The truck that hit her did not. The truck driver that hit her, causing the accident, he jumped out, uh, what was it? He tried to render aid. I mean, he did everything that, he, that you would want someone to do in that case. He wasn't drunk. There was no, there was every investigation at the time, and of course, police came. No, and there was no reality to that claim, and there's no place that claim come from came from except the imagination of Joe Biden. And yet, for years and years, this gets melded into his bio, how he speaks of himself, how he engenders sympathy. Of course, you'd be just as sympathetic to lose your wife and daughter, no matter what the circumstances. But to falsely accuse an innocent man of being drunk and who's, who did not cause the accident. And that man says his adult daughter now, she said every year we get around to Christmas time, the accident was December 18th, Mrs. Biden was headed out to buy a Christmas tree with the kids in the car. So December 18th, she said every year, my dad went into depression at the time of year where he, he didn't even, what's her language? He didn't even like to celebrate Christmas. This, this is different from getting confused about whether you were in the White House when the Florida shooting happened, which he wasn't. This is, goes to character. This is a core lie to pad my resume, lie to engender sympathy kind of story. And I'm still sorry for Mrs. Biden having passed on, all the accident having happened. And I don't think this is a reason alone to take Biden out of the race, but it goes to the core of your character to tell a lie of that nature and tell it and tell it and tell it. And actually an article even came out in the Atlantic several years ago, this daughter of the truck driver contacted the Bidens and said, could you please just stop saying that? Please stop saying that. Wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it. It helped him too much. So my friends, we, uh, the show always goes by faster than I want it to. I, only, I need three hours a day, but so far I don't have three hours. So right now, we're gonna go to the part of the show I love to do at the end of every show and tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. On, on Trump's Erdogan letter, Trump's candidacy and his presidency have put the lie to the ruling class claims to be the elite or the betters of America. Authentic, 
He is who he is. He's a billionaire American patriot deal maker. He's straightforward. He does what he says he will do. He gets things done. And Americans all over the country love him for it. President Trump's letter to Turkey's Erdogan is a classic example of the pearl-clutching betters of the ruling class aghast at Trump's blunt speak. I'm going to try to remember to use that. I like that blunt speak word. The jihadist Erdogan gets the message, and now he's asking for mediation. Americans can't wait to re-elect President Trump. A rep- Representative Elijah Cummings, may he rest in peace, remembering him honestly. On the one hand, he was a partisan Democrat. He elected, he, as an elected representative, they, he should have, and he did advocate for what he believes got him elected and how he sees the world. Privately befriending House colleagues on the other side is a great thing. He epitomized dedication and hard work for his district, did those things. On the other hand, brazenly dishonest about many things, but I'll just focus on this, about his involvement in IRS targeting of conservatives, especially true the vote, his over-the-top attacks on President Trump based on false narratives remain indefensible. And on Biden's baffling mendacity, I love using big words, mendacity just means dishonesty, Traffic accident in December of 1972 that claimed the lives of Biden's first wife and daughter. She was like, the daughter was like 13 months old, very, very tiny baby, uh, and injured his two young sons, was horrifically sad and deserving of great sympathy. But the facts established at the time were and are today. Biden's wife was at fault. She had a stop sign and the other driver didn't. The other driver was sober. He immediately took life-saving steps to help the Biden family. The other driver suffered depression annually around the anniversary of the accident, yet Joe Biden has made this incident into a stump stump speech item to denounce the drunk driving that so devastated his family, bio-lying, that's another word I'm gonna try to use, but I like that, because it's Elizabeth Warren too, bio-lying for political gain is creepy and is a reflection on character. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Please tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, right here, whether you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, wherever you're watching, love talking with you, love hearing from you. I get a lot of emails from listeners. You can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. I try to respond to comments on our YouTube channel, on Facebook. Um, I really love the conversation about America. I do this show to talk about the unique, extraordinary greatness of America, and it matters to speak up for this country. It matters to speak up because America matters. Talk to you next time. Can We Talk? Truth About America.